Amen. I'm going to uh, invite you to turn to two openings of Scripture this evening. We want to continue teaching and talking about the Holy Ghost and um, the gift that's been given to the church. Turn with me to John chapter 14 and also, also Matthew chapter 16. John chapter 14, we'll start with this, verse 1. Jesus, uh, well, I should say John gives us an account, an eyewitness account of the last night that Jesus was with his disciples after it was uh, at the Last Supper. Uh, Judas had gone out from among them. And then Jesus gives them some, what I believe is the most important instructions and information that he shared with them in any of his three years of earthly ministry. John 14, 1, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and pre pre prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there may, you may be also. And whither I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said unto him, Lord, we know not whether thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now turn real quickly to, to we're going to come back to John chapter 14. But let's go real quickly to Matthew chapter 16. Um, well, without reading the whole story, well, never mind, we'll read the whole story. Verse 13, when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said unto them, But whom say you that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. We're going to come back to that thought, so make a note of it. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Now, folks, i gotta, I got to tell you, this is at the end of Jesus' ministry, uh, no doubt about that. But Jesus spent more time telling people not to tell that he, that he was the, uh, the Christ than he did instructing people to, to make that declaration. Jesus wasn't, his primary purpose on the earth in his earthly ministry was not to, con uh, to convince people that he was the Son of God. There are 60 times in the four Gospels where, uh, uh, I'm sorry, there are 65 times in the four Gospels where Jesus is either called the Son of God or the Son of Man. 60 of them he identifies with the Son of Man, and most of those are him think, saying it about himself. Five of them identify him as the Son of God, and three of those are in one setting, one event that took place. That took place. Now notice verse 21. It said, from that time forth, from the point in time in Caesarea Philippi where Peter speaks for the group and identifies Jesus as the Christ. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised again the third day. Do you see that? Jesus is telling them about the, the things that are going to happen in Jerusalem. He's telling them about his death. But he's also telling them about being resurrected on the third day. Now let's go back to John chapter 14 again and pick up where we were. First, it tells us that Thomas said that they didn't know where he was going. Everything about the, the 14th, 15th, and 16th chapter of John is, uh, it has two primary purposes, or two primary focuses. One was that Jesus was leaving to go to his father. He talked a lot about that, and that's what disturbed them. It shouldn't have been a surprise to them because we just saw in Matthew chapter 16, what was it, verse 28, something like that, where Jesus plainly showed them. No parables, no illusions, no examples, no types, no shadows. 
He taught them clearly, it says, about going to Jerusalem, offering himself up, dying on the cross, and being raised again the third day. So I'm assuming, from the way that the Scripture reads, I'm assuming, and with um, a good deal of reason why, I'm assuming that he expected them to understand and remember the things he had taught them before. When they start talking about, we don't know where you're going, and then Philip says, show us the Father. Jesus realizes that after three years doing miracles that nobody else has done, after three years with him, his closest disciples haven't figured out the most basic purpose and reason for his coming. It, I, I read it here in John chapter 14 that Jesus is almost responding with incredulity. He talks about going to his father and, and Philip, Thomas says, we don't know where you're going. We don't know the way. Philip says, show us the father. And it's like, it seems like. Maybe this is not accurate. Maybe it's better if it wasn't. But it seems like after three years of Jesus doing everything that can be done and doing it perfectly, his disciples, guys that were with him day after day after day after day after day, for almost three years constant or solid, these guys don't have the basic information or the willingness to believe what he's taught them and told them clearly and plainly. So Philip again says, show us the Father, and it suffices us. And Jesus said unto him, have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? You, you really don't know who I am. He that has seen me has seen the Father, and how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Jesus says everything that I've done, everything that I've spoken, every work that's been taken, that, that took place, every healing that occurred, every miracle that happened. All this was the Father. Believest thou not that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father which dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. Now, he's not talking to, to novices of, in this situation. He's talking to the guys that have been with him day after day after day. Now, there's one thing about Jesus' ministry that, um, well, I think it's for the most part overlooked, but seemed to be very important to Jesus. And that is this. Jesus never took credit for any of the works that took place. He never took credit for the doctrine that people were astonished or amazed at. He said over and over again, I'm not the one doing the works. It's my Father in me that doeth the works. He said again and again, the words that I speak unto you, they're not of me. But they're words that the Holy Ghost gives me by the will of the Father to say to you. Now, why does he put such an emphasis on saying it's not him. I mean, he did want people to know that he was the Christ, didn't he? He did want people to believe that, especially the ones closest to him. Why does Jesus make such a point of saying, that's not me? Well, for one thing, it's part of the faithfulness of Jesus to honor and glorify his Father. And obviously, when he talks about the Father in me, he's doing the works. He's talking about the anointing of the Holy Ghost that came on him when John baptized him in the Jordan River. See, Jesus didn't change spiritually. Jesus was just as much the Son of God before he was anointed at the, the baptism by John as he was after. So spiritually, nothing changed. Before the baptism of John... And the Holy Ghost descending on him, it was him, Jesus. But after that, the Holy Ghost comes on him, now he's anointed. He said so. He read from Isaiah 61, as recounted in Luke chapter 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. He didn't say the Spirit of God is upon me because I'm the Son of God. He didn't say because I'm the Son of God, I have an anointing. He simply says the Spirit of the Lord is on me. 
because he's anointed me. Well, what's he anointed to do? Preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, were all those things his assignment because he was the son of God? No, those things became his assignment after the anointing of the Holy Ghost came on him. And that's why Jesus, over and over and over again, said, I'm not the one doing the works. You remember when the rich young ruler came to him and said, Good master, what must I do to be saved? He said, Why do you call me good? There's only one that's good, and that's the Father. Well, that doesn't mean Jesus isn't good. But again, Jesus is deferring any accolades, any praise that he gets directly to the Father. Because Jesus' overriding purpose in coming to the earth, in ministering for three years as he did, as, uh, in doing miracles that no man had ever done before, his whole purpose was to reveal the Father. And his disciples don't even get it. They don't even understand. Let's keep reading. Well, let me start again in verse 10. Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The, works, the words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself. But the Father dwelleth in, that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Notice he acquaints the words in the works. Both are of God. Certainly we understand both are operating by the Holy Ghost. The words are spirit-inspired. John 6, 63 says, Jesus said, The words I speak unto you, they are spirit and life. Where do you get those words? He said it was by the Holy Ghost. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but you know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more. But you see me, because I live, you shall live also." At that day you shall know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He that hath my commandments, and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and will manifest myself unto him. Let's skip down to verse 26. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things. And bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard how I said unto you that I go away and come again unto you. If you loved me, you would rejoice, because I said I go unto my Father. For my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it come to pass that when it is come to pass, you might believe. Hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me, but that the world may know that I love the Father, as the Father has given me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go hence. As I said, there are two main points in this conversation that Jesus has with the disciples, just a matter of hours perhaps before he's betrayed, and the, uh, the work of the cross begins. And those two points were that Jesus wanted to communicate to them, did communicate to them, that he's leaving to go to the Father. And then secondly, the Holy Ghost and what he would do for them. So when we see Jesus giving the credit for the words and the works to his Father, there has to be a reason there has to be a reason why he deflects the information from himself. Now, we know, for example, in Philippians chapter 2, 
it says Jesus laid aside his heavenly power and glory. King James says he made himself of no reputation, but that's what the words literally mean in the Greek. It, mean that, it means that he laid aside his heavenly power and glory and came to the earth as a man, not with God power, but as any and every other man that was born into this earth. He wasn't born into sin. He had no experience with sin other than being the substitute for it when he died on the cross. Because of the virgin birth, he had no experience with sin. But outside of that, the Bible tells us that he operated in every respect as a man. Now, here's a question for you. Did Jesus have memories of the life that he had with God before he came to the earth? The Bible says, Paul tells us, writing to the church, that all things were made by him and for him. And we certainly know that at the point of Jesus' resurrection, presenting himself to the Father, it says God gave him a name that was above every name, a name unknown even to us until we get there. But the highest name in the universe was conferred upon him. One of the things Jesus prayed for in John chapter 17, after they go out into the Garden of Gethsemane to, to pray, he tries to get the disciples to pray with him for an hour and they fall asleep. And the Bible says they fell asleep because of grief. They were very grieved because Jesus said that he was leaving them. It's finally dawned on them, no matter how many times they've heard it, no matter what Jesus has said, it finally dawns on them that he is going away. And they were so grieved by that they couldn't stay awake. But remember one of the things Jesus prayed for in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, Father, give me back the glory that I had with you before the worlds were. Well, then that has to mean he wasn't operating in that kind of glory here on the earth. If he's asking for God to give him back something he's already got, then obviously he didn't understand God's plan. But that was the heavenly power and glory that he laid aside to come to the earth. Well, God restored that back to him. Thank God he did. But when Jesus says, the works that I do shall you do also because the Holy Ghost has come. We can identify with that. We know that because of what we've seen Jesus do. The record of the four Gospels is so important to us. Because without that, we would not have a clear record or a clear picture of the Father at work on the earth. Jesus said it, the works he did uh, were not of himself but of the Father. So therefore everything that we see in Jesus we can identify as the will of God. Jesus said I didn't come to do my own will but the will of the Father. So every person that was healed, every principle of healing that we see identified by the four Gospels, every miracle that took place, every question that was asked and answered, all of those things are a revelation of the Father. Now, I told you we'd come back to the idea or something that was said in Matthew chapter 16. You remember when Peter answers for the group, Jesus says, but who do you say I am? Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus makes a very interesting statement in response to that. He says, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you. In other words, he says, you don't know this because of something I've said or even something I've done. He says, flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you. Well, what did reveal it to him then? But my Father which is in heaven. By my Father which is in heaven. So Jesus' example of showing the Father to the world is what caused it to sink in, at least at P in Peter, for a short period of time anyway. It doesn't seem that he held on to that very long. But that was the clearest picture that we have in the four Gospels where Jesus laid it out for his disciples and said, here's the deal. And then because he had identified himself as the Christ, as revealed by the Holy Ghost to Peter. We don't know if any of the others were with him when he said it or if he spoke for himself. But at least one of the disciples knew it by the revelation of the Holy Ghost. And that seemed to open the door to, to Jesus telling the disciples and beginning to teach clearly to the disciples about the crucifixion and the resurrection.
Look with me. I'm sorry if I'm jumping around. There's a lot of things that are rolling around on the inside of you about this. Look with me to John chapter 15. Jesus is still talking about the Holy Ghost and the work that is to come. I'm going to start in verse 22. Jesus said, If I had not come and spoken unto them, then they would not have had sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin. He that hateth me hateth my father also. He's clearly saying, concerning the Jews primarily, but really everybody, it applies to everybody. He said, if I hadn't given, given them the words, then they couldn't say that they, had, uh, that they were without sin. They couldn't deny their sinfulness. But now they have no cloak for their sin. Verse 24, if I had not done among them the works which none other man did, please notice that. If I hadn't done the works among them which none other man did, they had or would not have had sin. But now they both seen and hated both me and my father. But this cometh to pass that the word might be fulfilled which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. But when the comforter is come. Here's the Holy Ghost again making everything right. When the comforter is come who I, whom I will send unto you from the father. Even the spirit of truth which proceedeth from the father. He shall testify of me. And you also shall bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Again, Jesus is identifying that the disciples have seen all the works, all the miracles, all the great things that took place, the healings, the creative miracles, the maimed made whole. The disciples have witnessed all of those things, participated in a lot of those things. They saw the miracle of the loaves and the fishes, the feeding of the 5,000. And the miracle took place in their hands as they delivered the food to the people. Brother Hagin used to make a statement. Somebody asked him one time, why do you tell so many stories? And a lot of times the stories that he told were going on 50 years old. And so somebody asked him, they, did, they weren't being critical, they were a friend of his and friend of the ministry. But they asked him, why do you always tell stories? And Brother Hagin said this, he said, the next generation, talking about the one after him, talking about us. He said, the next generation are only going to know about God what they've seen in the previous generation. He said, if we don't tell the stories, if we don't recount the works, then they won't have faith. They won't have anything to put their faith in. So let me ask you this. Where did Jesus get the faith or the information or the knowledge or whatever it was that enabled him to do works that no other man had ever done. Look with me to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, verse 21, it says, Now when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Ghost descended in bodily shape like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee am I well pleased. The rest of the third chapter of Luke is the genealogy of Jesus. So let's skip over to chapter 4. And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now, folks, there are not many people praying that the Holy Ghost would lead them into wilderness. We want the Holy Ghost to lead us out of things, troubles and adversities. But it says Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being forty days tempted of the devil. And in those days he did eat nothing, and when they were ended, he afterward hungered. That's a, a, a pretty poor translation. It makes it sound like, the, uh, well, it, the way it says it in Luke's account, identifies that Jesus was led into the, the wilderness, and for forty days he was tempted of the devil. But that's not what it says. It says Jesus was led into the Spirit into the wilderness. And after being in the wilderness for 40 days, then the devil came to him. And you know the story. You know the temptations that he brought to Jesus. 
Now, the only thing I've ever heard preached on Jesus going into the wilderness is about the devil's temptation. Isn't that true for you? After the temptation takes place or ends, I should say, verse 13, and when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. Verse 14, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit unto Galilee. And there went on a fame of him through all, all the region round about. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. What was it that enabled Jesus to return in the power of the Spirit? Or maybe a better question is this. Why did Jesus need to go into the wilderness? Why didn't the, the Holy Ghost just take him right to Capernaum and start prompting him to do miracles and signs and wonders. Well, as I said, the only thing I've ever heard about the wilderness experience being talked about or taught is the temptation part from the devil. And thank God we have that record. Thank God we see how Jesus resisted temptation and the same way works for us. But when Jesus says again and again, I only do what my father what I see my father do. I only speak what my father gives me to say. Could it be that in those 40 days in the wilderness where Jesus is fasting, is it possible that that's when the Holy Ghost comes upon Jesus who's newly anointed to show him the works and the plans and the purposes of the Father? See, folks, I'm back to the same question I asked earlier. Did Jesus have any memory of his time with the Father in heaven before the worlds were? Or did he have to find out who he was through the word? We know when he was 12 years old, the Bible gives us hardly any uh, information about him in his early life before he was baptized by John in the Jordan River and the Holy Ghost came on him. The only exception to that is the, when he was uh, age 12. Every year the Bible says they'd go up for the feast of, uh, to Jerusalem for the feast of Passover. But when he was 12 years old, he didn't rejoin the company that was traveling together. Apparently it was a big crowd traveling together, which would make sense because you had greater safety from the highwaymen and robbers and so forth that staked out parts of the uh, remote areas and so forth trying to steal from people. But he didn't rejoin the group. And after a day going back home from Jerusalem, his mother and father, Joseph and Mary, realized that he's not with the crowd. So they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. They looked for him for three days. So there was the first day, the original day, and then three days after they get back to Jerusalem. So a day out, a day back, plus three, that's five days he's been gone. Or five days they haven't known where he is. But they found him in the temple, and he was talking to the high priests. They were asking him questions, and he was answering them. He was also asking them questions that they didn't have answers for. And they marveled at his understanding and his answers, the Bible says. They marveled at his understanding and his answers. Well, we see that Jesus knows the Word. We, and when we talk about the Word, we're talking about the Law and the Prophets. We know that Jesus has a, an understanding a supernatural understanding of the word. He's supernaturally filled with the word of God. Well, that would stand to reason. He was the word made flesh. But he didn't come to the earth with the word in his heart. He didn't come to the earth and be, and he, when he was born of a virgin, it wasn't like he started talking, quoting scripture. The third day in the crib or something. He found himself in the Word. Now, folks, think about that, what that means. If Jesus did not have memories of the time with God, his participation of the Trinity in the Trinity, before he came to the earth, and if he had, how in the world could he operate as a man? How in the world could he identify with us if he had memory of all those things? And if he's going to have memories of all those things that took place before the world began and the power and the glory that he laid aside according to Philippians chapter 2, what's the point of laying it aside?
I wonder if the Holy Ghost showed him anything when he was in the wilderness. I wonder if the Holy Ghost gave him visions. I wonder if he learned certain things, maybe not everything, but certain things about what God does and how God does things. If Jesus is going to do the works that no other man did, and Jesus really is the man, a God-man, but still a man, then he's going to have to learn and hear it, or hear it and see it from somewhere. And that's why I believe Jesus makes such a point of saying, I'm not the one doing the works. I'm not the one doing the works. See, folks, the only thing we know about God is what we've seen. Certainly we can take it by faith. Certainly we can accept the word of God as truth and put our faith in anything and everything that it says and should. But except for Jesus showing us what he had seen the Father do. We could be saved and be on this earth for thousands of years and never know who our Heavenly Father really is. The Holy Ghost revealed to Peter that Jesus was the Christ. Look with me now to John chapter 16. I hope this is making some sense. We'll start reading in verse uh, 6. John 16, verse 6, he said, But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow has filled your hearts. This is the grief that we were talking about that came on the disciples. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. The word expedient means better, helpful. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, Talking about come to the disciples. In other words, when he's poured out in Acts chapter 2. When he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they believe not on me. Folks, that's the only unpardonable sin that there is. There are other things that we will have to answer for. The Bible said, Jesus said, if you blaspheme against the Holy Ghost... That's a sin that will not be forgiven. In other words, that's one you have to answer for when you get to heaven. The Bible says some men's sins follow after them, and some go before him. But this is the unpardonable sin, rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. Because if anybody rejects Jesus as the Messiah, the substitute and the Savior for all of mankind, then they have no Redeemer. If they have no redeemer, they have no redemption. Hell is the only option that's available for them. It's sad that, that, that so many people choose it from ignorance or out of ignorance. Of sin because they believe not on me. Of righteousness because I go into my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. Notice mankind isn't judged. This was judgment upon the devil. God never lost sight of the fact that man wasn't his enemy. Now, the Bible says we were enemies of God at one time before we were born again because of the nature of the devil that we had, the nature of sin and death that, that we were in bondage to. But that was so, what was so wonderful about the cross. For the first time, God was able to deal with sin, to exact judgment on sin apart from mankind. And the reason that was available and the reason that was possible is because Jesus was the substitute for all of mankind that the judgment and the wrath of God fell upon. Prior to that, all they could do, all Israel could do is cover their sins for a one-year period. But that didn't change them spiritually. Thank God Jesus took the, took the punishment of us all. Verse 12, I have many things yet to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, or that shall he speak, 
and he shall show you things to come. What does that mean? He will show you things to come. We usually interpret that as he'll show you things in the future. And that has to be part, at least part of the meaning there. He will show you things to come. But when he's telling this to the disciples, showing you things to come would also mean to show you the salvation that his death, burial, and resurrection would purchase. He will show you things to come. Verse 14, he shall glorify me for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. What's he talking about? He's saying the Holy Ghost will give you dreams and visions. When the Holy Ghost was poured out in Acts chapter 2, that's what Peter preached. This is what Joel said. Then in the last days I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. What are those visions and dreams about? Well, if they're God-given, they have to be about God. If they're God-given, then they have to include things that would be necessary for us to carry out God's plan and purpose. Now, the early church seemed to have a handle on this that the modern-day church doesn't seem to get. For example, you remember in Acts chapter 9 where Saul is on the road to Damascus and meets Jesus? The light shined round about Paul and his company. Well, his name was Saul at this time. He's going to Damascus with letters of authority to put him in jail or prison or bring harm to anybody that names the name of Jesus as, as this, uh, the Christ, the Savior. This light knocks Paul off of his donkey and a voice from heaven comes. Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Saul answers, who art thou, Lord? Don't know your name, but it's obvious you're God. And Jesus says, I'm Jesus whom you persecute. Now, folks, there's no way that Saul thought he was persecuting Jesus. He thought he was persecuting the Christians for flaky doctrine. Jesus said, if you're persecuting mine, you're persecuting me. So he asked, what, what shall I do, Lord? Jesus said, go into the city and it will be told you from there. Then it tells us about Ananias who's praying and sees the Lord in a vision. And the Lord says to him, Ananias, I want you to go into the house called Straight and inquire for one Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth. So Ananias, oh, because behold, he prayeth. For he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and laying his hands on him that he might receive his sight. Now Ananias answered. you remember how he answered? Should we turn and look at it or can you remember? Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard many things of this man. How that he imprisoned many of the saints in Jerusalem. And now he's come here with letters of authority to do the same thing in Damascus. Notice the... I don't want to call it casual attitude. Notice the familiarity that Ananias has with God. He has reservations because he's thinking he has no way to know it until that point that Saul has been saved. And so his concern is for other Christians, other believers. It's almost as if Ananias is saying, this is a guy that's persecuting the church. If he's blind, shouldn't that be good news? And shouldn't we want to leave him like that? But the Lord reveals something else to Ananias. He says, go your way, for he's a chosen vessel unto me. To bear my name, to bear my name before kings and the Gentiles. For I must show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Then Ananias, it's almost as if Ananias says, well, okay, if he's going to suffer, then I'll go. <laughs> that may not be exactly the way that it went, but it's almost the way the Bible reads. But notice the familiarity. Here's somebody that has a vision. And he's talking to the Lord in the vision. It doesn't say anything like we see in the Old Testament where uh, some of the prophets 
had the Spirit of the Lord come upon him or had visions and they fell down on their face. It's almost as if this is, if not an everyday occurrence, a common occurrence. And folks, I got to tell you, I don't know many people that have a prayer life like Ananias seemed to. Do you? See, when the Holy Ghost was given to the early church, when he was poured out onto the earth, the early church seemed to immediately experience the things that Jesus said in John 14, 15, and 16 that he would do. They understood the presence of the Holy Ghost was for power. They weren't looking for the presence of the Holy Ghost to bring salvation to them. The Holy Ghost, the Bible says the Holy Ghost is the gift to the church. Jesus is a gift to the world. But when Jesus was talking about the Holy Ghost, he said the world won't know him. He's talking about the unsaved. The world won't know him, but you will. Because he'll be in you and he shall be with you. How is he in them? Because Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Ghost, and they were born again. Then several weeks later, Acts chapter 2 takes place. Why would God want the early church, the first generation of the church, to have a more familiar experience and relationship and fellowship with the Holy Ghost than he would want for us? Can anybody give me a reason why? I know a lot of the church says, well, we don't need the Holy Ghost in the same way because now we have the entirety of the Bible. Okay. In my experience, those are not people that are really living by the Bible anyway. They pick and choose the parts that they want, but explain away the things that they either don't want or don't have a real reason why it doesn't work that way today. And honestly, folks, I, when I look at church doctrine over the years and so forth, it seems that people, maybe with a good heart, maybe with good intentions, it seems that people are trying to explain away things that they can't make work for themselves. And I have no doubt that most of those people would throw away their doctrine of stuff being passed away if they could just experience that kind of relationship with the Holy Ghost. Who's going to give that away once they experience it? But again, we're back to the same point. Jesus said, I can only do what my father, what I see my father do. That's one of the great works of the Holy Spirit. He'll show you things to come. Now, I don't know how Jesus' day went. I mean, what's a typical day for Jesus? The Bible says on many occasions he stayed up all or most of the night praying. I can't believe that Jesus is praying for hours on end for power. Because he knows that the Holy Ghost, even gifts of the Spirit, manifestations of the Spirit of God. He knows those things work as God wills, not as he does. So I can't see him praying after, after, hour after hour for power. But I can see him praying hour, hour after hour if God is showing him things. If the Holy Ghost is showing him things to come. Now, I don't know if, how that went every day, if it was a daily thing. There are some things that indicate that it wasn't that way. For example, the woman with issue of blood in Mark chapter 5. Jesus is on his way to Jairus' house. And by the time he gets there, he's delayed because of the things and the events that happened surrounding the woman with issue of blood. By the time he gets there, he raises the daughter from the dead. But when the woman with issue of blood, who had had this affliction for 12 years had spent all of her living on doctors and was nothing better but rather grew worse. When she heard of Jesus, she came in the press behind and touched his clothes. For she said, what she heard caused her to have faith to say something. For she said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus turned him about in the press and said, who touched me? 
Why didn't he identify her? Why didn't he say, I saw you in a vision last night? He'd be remiss if that had happened and he didn't tell us. That wouldn't be right. So he doesn't seem to know who it is. His disciples are no help. They said, everybody's trying to touch you. We're not going to be able to find one single person or one, uh, the, the very one that you're looking for, whoever that might be. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Did he not know? If he knew, then he's putting on an act. He couldn't have known. It says, but the woman, fearing and trembling, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said, daughter, your faith has made you whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. So Jesus couldn't have known everything that was going to happen from day to day. And in many cases, it seems that Jesus is simply on call. He's waiting for somebody or something to put a demand on the anointing of God that, he, that was upon him. Jairus is a good example of that. Jesus altered his plans. Whatever he had planned for that day, he altered his plans when Jairus came and said, My daughter lieth at home at the point of death. Jesus immediately goes with him. What did Jesus have to cancel the service that he had planned for later on in the afternoon? It seems that Jesus was on call in many respects for whoever would place a demand on the power. And that makes sense to me too. Jesus would go and get better results with people that were already in faith and trying to go places like Nazareth where they wouldn't receive him. In Nazareth, he could there do no mighty work. Save or except he left, laid his hands on a few sickly folks and healed them. A few folks with minor ailments was all he could get. But he couldn't get any miracles. He couldn't get any great healings because the people of the city rejected him. So where did Jesus go? He went where people would accept him. It kind of makes sense, doesn't it? I know we like to try to force God into our plans or our programs. But I'm not so sure Jesus went that way. In fact, I think we can build a pretty good case for, the, for him not doing things in that manner. I'm fascinated by the fact that Jesus seems to give all the credit for everything that was done back to the Father through the Holy Ghost. He goes to great lengths to say, it's not me doing the works. Why is that so important to him? Because if he can convince his disciples, and that would include us, if he can convince his disciples that it doesn't have to do with who you are as an individual, but rather the will of God that's expressed in power and demonstration by the Holy Ghost, then we can do the same works he did. We can do greater works. I have no idea what greater works are. I'm sorry, I'm just blank on that one. What could be greater than what we saw Jesus do? What we see him do? But there again, the same thing's true for us. We're only going to be able to do what we can see. It's the seeing and the knowing that brings us to a place of faith where we can do the same works that Jesus did. Now, Jesus wants that to be. That's what he said would take place. It wouldn't make sense for him to, to tell us that the works that he did, we can do also if he didn't want us to do those works. He's leaving us the same power source, the Holy Spirit of God, to perform those works and greater works, whatever they may be. How are we going to see these things? Well, I'm back to what Jesus told Peter at Caesarea Philippi when Peter declares him to be the Christ. Jesus said, flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father which, goes in, which is in heaven. The Father, certainly by the Holy Ghost, 
The Holy Ghost is always the active agent of God in the world, the earth. So here we've got supernatural revelation coming to Peter so that he knows who it is he's following. I'm looking for some supernatural revelation, folks. How about you? We're a generation that has basically lost the reality of the power of the Holy Ghost. Church nowadays, at least in America, for the most part, has been reduced to a social media experience. Even when people do gather together for church, it's all about how hip we sound or how cool we try to be or how relevant our services are so that you can engage. I, I don't know what any of those words mean that people use. One thing I know for sure, the church has never been more guilty of having their own language that means nothing to the world than we are now. But I'm looking for some good old-fashioned miracles. I'm looking for some good old-fashioned suddenlies. I'm looking for God to reveal to us like never before the power of his word, his willingness to heal and to bless and to deliver. I'm looking for visions and dreams. I'm not seeking after them. I'm not trading in the word for visions and dreams. But the word says, the eternal word of God that cannot change and cannot lie, said that in our day, the church age, one of the reasons of the outpouring of the Holy Ghost coming on all flesh is for young men to see visions and old men to dream dreams. Well, let's pray. We've talked long enough. Father, we bless you. We thank you for all that you've done for us. We thank you for your plan of redemption, that through the blood of Jesus we have been made righteous. As inconceivable as it might be to our puny minds, you have made us just as righteous as Jesus is himself. And because we're righteous, because we're your family, Jesus told us that we would receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon us. Well, Lord, we've been filled with the Holy Ghost. But for the most part, this modern-day church has had to substitute tongues for power. But Lord, Paul said when he went to the Corinthians that he didn't come to them with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that their faith should not stand in men, but in the power of God itself. Again, in Acts chapter 4, Lord, the disciples went to their own company after they had been threatened by the authorities. And they prayed, and now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants boldness that they may speak your word by stretching forth your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done in the name of thy holy child, Jesus. Father, you stretched out your hand to heal in response to their prayer. We thank you for stretching forth your hand to heal in response to ours. You didn't love them more than you love us. So we pray that signs and wonders would be done in the name of Jesus just as they did. And Father, we expect to have the same results as they had. Maybe not the same signs, maybe not the same wonders, but signs and wonders nonetheless. Holy Spirit, do a work in us.
that you might be able to reveal yourself unto God's children. Holy Spirit, Jesus said you'd show us things to come. Show us things to come. Show us what's coming in the future, certainly. But show us your plan and your purpose, too. Show each one of us our part in that which you have ordained to be done. Holy Spirit, we give you free reigning course in this church. Father, you know my heart. You know that I mean that with every fiber of my being. But you also know our limitations. You know that there are some things that we don't know how to do because we've never seen them done. Those are the things that we ask that you show us. We seek to do the same works that Jesus did and whatever the greater works are, we seek that too. We covet the gifts of the Spirit, the manifestations of the Holy Ghost. But Father, we ask that the Spirit of seeing and knowing would be great in our midst. The Spirit of seeing and knowing. Father, it's been prophesied by men that were in your service, faithful men who faithfully spoke for you. It's been prophesied that the last day revival will be greater than anything the world has ever seen. Father, we've heard stories of truckloads of wheelchairs and braces and crutches. in such abundance that trucks had to be hired to take these things away from churches that experienced the healing revival of days past. Father, I want to see that. I want to see that too. Holy Spirit, we yield ourselves to you. To do whatever you want done. All you have to do is show us how. And with the revelation you give. We'll mix our faith with it. And expect to see the miraculous. We bless you Father. In Jesus name. Amen. Let's all stand. Let's lift our hands to our Heavenly Father one more time and thank Him for His goodness. We thank You, Lord, for all that You did for us, the sacrifice You made on the cross. We thank You, Father, for Your plan of redemption your willingness to place our sins and the sins of the world upon Jesus, that he might bear them away, that he might bear away our sins and our iniquities, that he might bear away sickness and disease, and that he might bear away poverty and lack. Thank you, Father, for being willing to give your only son for us. It was a great price that was paid. So Holy Spirit, we ask you, glorify the name of Jesus through us. Glorify the name of Jesus in this place. Holy Spirit, do the work that you were sent to do. We know you're not the hindrance. Any hindrance would have to be on our end. 
So change us. Open our eyes to what needs to be changed. That we might see and know the glory of the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You better leave. I'm in one of those things where I'll just start praying every time I have something to say. Say it with me. The Lord is good. And his mercy endures forever. Amen. God bless you.